I invite you to open your Bible this morning with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians as we are uh, near the end. Uh, Lord willing, we will have one more message next week, uh, sort of a summary and wrap up uh, this, this study. Uh, Galatians has been a book where Paul has been, as you know, battling with uh, people who are uh, undermining the gospel by uh, suggesting that circumcision matters and circumcision and the cross, or they're trying to add something to the gospel. And we're going to see here again in Galatians chapter 6, where Paul just holds before us the central things about the gospel, the things that are necessary to be believed in order to be a Christian and to be saved. And so let's uh, pick it up, uh, verse 11 of chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not keep themselves do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. We'll be looking this morning at verses 11 through 16. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this scripture uh, today as bread from heaven. We thank you that Jesus Christ is uh, made manifest to us again today. I pray that your spirit help us to see him and to delight in his gospel. Uh, Lord, to believe in his gospel and to, and to know this Jesus who loved us and gave his life for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, my question this morning as we begin is what is it that makes a Christian, a real Christian. Uh, what is it that is necessary? And uh, if you would, if you would take it away, would you leave me with something less than a real Christian? Let me give you an example from the world of sports that uh, maybe helps you understand what I'm asking. Uh, we could, we could say, <clears throat> what is it that makes the game of basketball? <clears throat> excuse me. Um, <clears throat> actually and truly, the game of basketball and not soccer or volleyball. Uh, because if you think of it, there are, there are um, some similarities between the three games. They, uh, they all are team sports. Uh, they all involve a, uh, a round ball of roughly the same size. Uh, they uh, all involve scoring into nets. Uh, but what is it then that makes each game distinct? What is it that makes soccer, soccer, and volleyball, volleyball, and basketball, basketball? And, and the answer, of course, is the rules. The rules define the game. The rules say that uh, in, in soccer you can dribble with your feet, but in basketball you can't. You've got to dribble with your hands. Uh, the rules define the game. Well, the same is true for Christianity. In verse 16, Paul talks about uh, those who walk by this rule, and, and those who walk by this rule, Paul says, are the true Israel of God. And those who walk by this rule have the peace and the mercy of God given to them. The rule defines the religion. 
To observe this rule that Paul's going to lay down is to practice real Christianity. To ignore or violate this rule is to practice some different religion altogether. That's what's on the line. Now, that's a, it was a critical issue, of course, in Paul's day because, as you know, there were some false teachers, men from Jerusalem, uh, who professed, <clears throat> professed to be Christian and yet who were bringing confusion into the church. Uh, and they were bringing confusion because they were trying to blend the rules. It's like trying to blend the rules of basketball and soccer. They were blending the rules of Judaism with the religion of Christianity. And in the process, they were perverting the gospel and causing a great deal of confusion in the church. And so Paul has written this letter to remind these believers of what the true, pure gospel actually is and, and what it means to be a real Christian. And he's highlighted the things that define the true Christian faith. And this morning we're going to see that he closes his letter then with a short reminder. There are two things, two essential truths that um, define the Christian faith and that is um, the idea of a, the embrace of the cross and then the necessity of a new creation. So the embrace of the cross and the necessity of a new creation. Well, Paul begins his conclusion with, um, by calling attention to his penmanship. It's sort of an odd way to begin, but his common practice uh, was to uh, have a scribe dictate. He would, he would speak and the scribe would, would write down what he was saying. That was his normal way of writing his letters. But his practice at was at the end of the letter, he would take the pen in his own hand and he would finish the letter in his own hand. Uh, it would be a way of personalizing the letter, but also it would, be, uh, it would authenticate this letter as having come from him. You could see Paul's handwriting. It was a mark of apostolic authority in that sense. Well, here Paul uh, highlights, he draws attention to the large letters he's using. Uh, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And there's been some debate as to why Paul uh, uh, highlights this. Some think it was because he has bad eyesight. I, I don't, it may be true. I don't think that would have any bearing on, on this. I think J.B. Phillips is, is uh, on the right track when, uh, when he says that large letters were, was the, uh, the way that writers in those days would emphasize a point. It's kind of like highlighting and underlining. Today we would use, you know, bold, italics, caps, uh, things like that as, as we're uh, writing our email. It, com it communicates urgency. This is really important. So Paul's saying, listen, see these large letters as he writes this conclusion? Get this. Pay attention to this. This really matters as he concludes his letter. Well, let's look then at the things that Paul uh, wants to put before us as critically important, as I said, the embrace of the cross and the necessity of a new creation. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says it's, it is uh, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The key thing that distinguished Paul's Christianity from the uh, Judaizer version is their different understanding of what the cross was, what the cross did, so a different theology of the cross, and then a different practice of the cross, or, or um, a different focus in their religion. So if you, um, 
if we think about the, a different theology of the cross, we've studied this as we've gone through the letter. The Judaizers would absolutely agree with Paul that Jesus died on a cross. And that Jesus died, died on a cross atoning for sin. They would agree with that. And that it was necessary to believe that in order to be a Christian. They just didn't think that that death was sufficient for salvation. It wasn't enough. There was something more that must be done. And the something more, of course, is to be circumcised and come under the law of Moses. And so their message, as we know from the book of Acts, is you cannot be saved unless you accept the circumcision of Moses. Unless you become a Jew. And so they're trying to blend, you see, Judaism with Christianity. They believe the cross is important. They, they could assure you of that. They could preach sermons on that. They just don't believe it's enough. Well, Paul obviously disagrees vehemently with that, and Paul calls that a different gospel and anathematizes them. If, they, if anyone preaches to you a gospel different than the one that we proclaimed, let him be anathema. Because there's only one gospel, that is the gospel of God, and that is sufficient for the salvation of sinners. Well, that different theology of the cross led to a different focus between the Judaizers and Paul. Paul had his focus, he had laser vision for the glory of God in the revelation of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. But as we noted as we studied this book, that when you add something to the cross, something to the gospel, something to Jesus... Well, that something becomes your focus. So when the Judaizers add circumcision to the cross, circumcision becomes their focus. That's what they talk about. That's what they're uh, proclaiming. That's what they're urging people towards. It's circumcision. Paul says that uh, in verses 12 and 13, their goal is to make a good showing in the flesh and to boast in the flesh of the Gentiles as they're encouraging them to be circumcised. Uh, they want to be able, you see, to brag to their Jewish friends, Christian and unchristian. Uh, they want to be able to brag uh, about their ministry of circumcising Gentiles, making Gentiles Jewish. Uh, that's what they focus on. Circumcision is their focus. And they have a different motive. Paul's motive, again, is the glory of God and the salvation of sinners uh, their motive, Paul explains, is that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Their motive was that they would not suffer uh, because of the name Christian. That they would not have to follow Jesus uh, on this path of suffering. You see, the greatest persecution for the early church undoubtedly came from the Jewish community. Uh, Paul was persecuted by the Jews far more than the Romans. Um, and, and the reason that the Jews hated Christianity is partly because it comes from Judaism. And so they would see family members uh, who are um, embracing Jesus, who claims to be the Jewish Messiah. So it's very close. But the thing that infuriates the Jews about Christianity is that um, it, it obliterates the line that they believe existed between Jews and everybody else. You see, um, Jews were convinced that they were a distinct people as the people of God, as the children of Abraham. That made them, in a sense, a, a complete different race. And everyone else then is, is a Gentile sinner. And that line is sacrosanct. 
You just don't cross that line. And so when you see Christians and, uh, or, or Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians eating together as an act of being reconciled in the cross, well, it's, it's obliterating the line. And that line is their identity. That line is their righteousness. Thank God I am not as other men are. Right? That's the fundamental prayer of a proud Jewish man. And so they hate the message of the cross because the cross acts like the line doesn't matter. The cross says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew and have the law. Do you keep the law? Doesn't matter if, if you're a Gentile and you have the law written on your heart. You've sinned against that law. The cross um, shuts every mouth, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Every mouth is, is shut up and, and everyone is then held under the judgment of God and the cross then says that there is one way and only one way for everyone and anyone to be made right with God and that way is by humbling yourself, confessing your sin, your moral bankruptcy before God and casting yourself entirely as a naked, needy sinner upon the merit of Christ's atoning blood and that's it. No matter how religious you are, how Jewish you are, how moral you are, unless you get on the ground with the prostitutes and the pagans and plead for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, you cannot and will not be saved. And so if you're a proud, uh, moral, you know, self-righteous Jew, that is deeply offensive. Of course, it's deeply offensive to every natural-born man and woman. The, the cross offends everyone because we, by nature, like to believe that there's something that we can offer to gain God's favor. If, if you uh, ask people, um, if you were to die tonight and uh, God says, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? There are only two answers to that question. Uh, it'll either be, um, there's no reason whatsoever. I just cast myself on Jesus Christ and I believe that um, his promise that all those who come to him will be saved. That's all I got. It's either that or you'll find people who don't understand that message talking about their good works. They're, you know, I've, I've done this. I've tried to do that. God knows my heart. We like to believe there's something we can bring to the table. Some reason we could offer why we would be worthy of God's love and favor. And the cross destroys all that. John Stott says the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves. That we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. And of course, men do not like it. They resent the humiliation of seeing themselves as God sees them and as they really are. We don't like to see ourselves as God sees us and we really are. So the cross is this incredible offense to natural man and that is why the Judaizers and, uh, and so many others in the history of the church try to soften the, the message of the cross, try to soften the offense of the cross. The Judaizers, you see, in their Jewish context where that message is offensive, they are seeking to make the gospel less offensive, more culturally appealing. 
And it seems to be an easy fix if we can just convince um, the, the church that circumcision, the laws of Moses are, are necessary for salvation and we can get Gentiles to be, conver- to be circumcised, the offense will be removed. And we don't have to suffer persecution. And they were right. It's a perfect scheme. The, the, the only thing that gets lost is the gospel. Well, throughout the history of the church, people have tried to make the gospel less offensive, to make the cross more culturally uh, appealing. I came across a, uh, just a, a very clear example of this just last week. I was um, watching a, a little video clip of a man named Ibram Kendi. Maybe some of you know his name. He's the founder of the anti-racist movement. And he's speaking in a church in uh, Manhattan. And someone from the audience asked him, how can the church participate in the anti-racist movement? And he gave a very thoughtful um, answer where he made a careful distinction between what he labeled as savior theology and liberation theology. Savior theology, according to Kendi, says that the mission of the church is, quote, to go out and save individuals who are doing all these evil, sinful things and to heal them. Uh, That is racist theology, Kendi says, because, quote, it tells people that the reason why they are struggling on earth is because of their own sinful deeds rather than oppressive power structures. And Kendi says that type of theology breeds bigotry. Now, liberation theology, on the other hand, which Kendi affirms, says, quote, Jesus was a political revolutionary, and the job of the Christian is to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. So that's Kendi's understanding of what a Christian should be, what the job of the church um, ought to be. It's, it was very interesting, if you watch the video, that directly behind Kendi, so right on the wall here, uh, was the inscription of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And that, if you remember, that's where Jesus um, explains who he actually is and what he thinks the job of the Christian ought to be. All power in heaven and earth has been given unto me, and go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, the Christian gospel... And the gospel of liberation theology are two different gospels. And the telling sign is one embraces the offense of the cross and the other avoids the the offense of the cross. There is no gospel offense in a, uh, or there's no cross offense in a gospel of social activism. The world will applaud you for that religion. Likewise, there is no offense of the cross in the gospel of health and wealth. The world loves that message. You you can be a Joel Osteen. It works. People will flock to hear it. There is no offense of the cross in a gospel of self-affirmation and affirmment. You can make millions of dollars selling Jesus as a life coach. But if you preach Christ crucified, if you proclaim the Son of God offered up as a bloody sacrifice on a Roman cross as the only hope for sinful man to escape the wrath of God that is to come and which they fully deserve, you will offend people. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But, Paul says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God, and that's why Paul boasts in the cross. Paul loves this gospel. That is the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says in Romans chapter 117, because it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. And so Paul says, far be it from me than to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The language is extremely strong. God forbid I should boast in anything other than the cross of Christ. It's an unthinkable sin for him. An unimaginable horror for him to boast in something other than the cross of Christ. To make something other than the death of Jesus Christ for sinners his focus. The cross was his life. It's where Jesus loved him and atoned for him and reconciled him to God. He, the blasphemer, the persecutor. You see, the, 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 the cross was Paul's whole world. And, and he loved the cross because in the cross he had died to the world. He says that uh, by, in verse 14, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, when Paul met Jesus, uh, he, he was in love with the world. He loved the principles and the prestige and the power of the world. He loved his self-righteousness as a Jew and as a Pharisee. He loved his prestige as a religious scholar, studied under Galileo and or, um, Gamaliel. Galileo came a little later. And uh, he loved being this religious scholar and zealot. He was a fiercely proud man, confidently earning the favor of God as he persecuted the church. He was in love with this world. But then he met Jesus. And when Paul met Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, his whole world crumbled in the blinding light of Jesus Christ. Paul, for the first time, saw who he actually was. This, this wicked blasphemer of God, a persecutor of this glorious Messiah standing in front of him. And when he grasped the wonder of the cross where this glorious Christ had loved him and gave his life for him. Paul died. He died to himself, to his filthy works of self-righteousness, and he died to the world, and it died to him. In other words, the world had no claim on him any longer, no appeal to him any longer. He didn't care what people said. It didn't concern him if they were offended by the cross. If they were offended, it was just evidence that they were perishing. He died to the world. It had no claim on him or appeal to him. The principles and passions of this world were useless to him. And Paul then would gladly spend the rest of his life proclaiming the offense of the cross and suffering the persecution that came with it as he preached Christ crucified for sinners. Friends, I, I think it's important for us to, to prepare ourselves to suffer for the cause of Christ. Jesus says that if we follow him, we will, we will experience persecution. And we uh, need to prepare ourselves by loving the cross like Paul loved the cross. It's not enough to believe in the cross. The devil believes in the cross. 
The Judaizers believed in the cross. But you see, just believing in the cross won't give you the, the courage to stand and, and, and suffer persecution for the cross. You need to love the cross this way. We need to, we need to love the cross and glory in the cross as, 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 as God's primary means of magnifying His own name and the only way that sinners like you and I can actually be reconciled to God, that we can truly be saved. And if we don't love the gospel and love the cross in this way and, and delight in how God uh, glorifies Himself and being both just and the justifier of the ungodly, if we don't love it that way, see, then we'll love our life, we'll love uh, the, the world and be unable to, to suffer the reproach of the cross. And so a key mark of true Christianity, is a, a key rule is just embracing the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the necessity of a new creation. Paul says, verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. If the first mark of uh, uh, the, the first rule of authentic Christianity is a, maybe a warning sign for those who would change or twist the gospel in order to make it less offensive, this second rule is a warning for those who would assume the gospel. You see, there's a, there's a constant sinful tendency in the church to settle for the external signs of religion and overlook the necessity of an inward reality. And so it, we could say if the first rule is for the evangelical progressive church, the second rule maybe is particularly uh, relevant for conservative but carnal churches. Uh, the word carnal comes from the Latin word for flesh, and Paul talks about the religion of the Judaizers as a fleshly religion. They focused on the external. The, they emphasized the external. And Paul says the external doesn't count for anything. He, he, he said it before, right? Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't count. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Here he says the same thing with a little twist. The only thing that counts is a new creation. So the Judaizers are focused on the external things, that, things that don't count at all before the, 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 the throne room of heaven, right? When, when you get there, you, you won't be able to say, well, I was circumcised or I was baptized or I went to church. The question is, well, have you been born again by the Holy Spirit? Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. That's what counts. Have you been regenerated by the power of God so that you're actually literally a new creation? The external counts for nothing. What matters is that internal work of the Holy Spirit. I grew up, as you know, in a solid Dutch conservative Reformed church, and I loved it. I was blessed in so many ways by my upbringing, by the biblical emphasis and teaching, the doctrinal emphasis. But one of the most aggravating things for me, things that, the, the thing that I wrestled with a great deal as I became a, a young man and, and was and reading my Bible, is just the lack of attention to internal realities. So back when, 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 I, was, when I was young, when, when people, young people made profession of faith, the practice was to ask them catechism questions. But we were not asked about this, you see, about the new creation. 
And the assumptions seem to be that if we knew the answers to the catechism questions, that we were genuinely, authentically Christian. But that's not true. It's, it's not even close to true. The only thing that counts is a new creation. The external aspects of, of faith all have their place. They, 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 they matter in, in terms of building up our faith, but they don't make you a Christian. Going to church and, and participating in worship are vitally important, but they don't by themselves mean that you're a Christian, that, that you are actually in the faith. The only thing that counts is a new creation. Conservative churches need to hear this. We need to receive this. Is the Spirit of God actually at work in our midst so people are born again, are being made new by the power of God Himself? That's what counts. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're asking, well, how do I know if I'm a new creation? Let me close with this, a few questions. Let me ask you, do you believe the gospel is true? This gospel, Paul's gospel, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your only hope and that there's nothing you could do but trust in what God has done? Do you believe that gospel to be true? Friends, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't believe that. It's folly to you unless you are being saved by the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you confess your sin? Do you see your sin as an offense to God? And, and, and do you grieve your sin? And, and are you striving to repent of sin? Does, does, is that Holy Spirit battle of, of Galatians chapter 5, is that happening in your life? Or you do, do you just live in your sin very comfortably and easily? You see, if there's a battle going on where, where you're, you grieve it and you, and you confess it as sin and, and, you re, and you're repenting of it because it offends God... That's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't do that without the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you desire to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord? You realize you've got just a few short years here on planet Earth and you want to use the one life that you've been given to in some small way honor Jesus Christ, to, to, make, it a, to, to make it evident that you believe Jesus is valuable and, and precious. Well, you can't desire that without the Holy Spirit. Do you love Jesus? That would have been a good question, right, for confession of faith. Do you love Jesus? The one who loved you and, and gave his life for you? I don't think we'd say, yes, Lord, I, I do love you. Help me to love you more. You see, friends, those are the genuine evidences of the work of the Spirit. Those are the things that matter. Those are the marks of a new creation. And if you can say by the grace of God, yes, Lord, I, I do. I do believe the gospel. I really do. And I'm trusting not in what I do, but in Jesus alone. And I, I, I do confess my sin. And, and, and I want to live a life that's pleasing to you. Then Paul gives you this benediction, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. To the Israel of God. You see, those who follow the, these rules, that, those are the, that's the true Israel of God. Those are, those are the people who really belong to God. Those who embrace the cross and have experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit within.
And so, friends, God's promise to you, his precious people, is then that grace, his peace, his mercy. That's God's gift to you, his people. His peace, his mercy. I, I love that song, right? Um, Let my life be a monument to mercy. Isn't that a great line? A monument to mercy. So when people look at the oven deck, wow, what a gracious God. What an amazing, gracious God. And the same for you. May God's peace and his mercy be yours. Amen. Well, Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this gospel. A gospel that humbles us, gives us nothing to boast in except Jesus. And oh God, I pray that you would help us to believe this gospel with all of our heart and to love this gospel with all of our soul. And Lord, I pray you'd make us bold to proclaim this gospel in a lost and confused world. A gospel, Lord, that is able to save sinners to the uttermost. A gospel that is able to bring peace and unity and harmony in a, in a, a world that's ripped apart by sin. A gospel that can actually transform communities and a nation and a world because it is the power of God. And so, Lord God, I, I pray that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit that we might truly embrace the cross, embrace its offense, and by the power of God be made new, crea new creations. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who, Lord, have realized that they've, they've never really done these things, they haven't submitted to these rules, I, I, Lord, I, I pray that today would be the day where they humbled themselves before Christ. And that today the Holy Spirit would give them the ability to believe in a saving way. And that they would meet Jesus as Paul did on the road to Damascus, the Savior of sinners. The beautiful Savior. And that, Lord, that the rest of their life would be devoted to knowing him. And being found in him. Not having a righteousness of their own, but that which comes by grace and through faith. So, Lord, bless us with these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with number 252 from your hymnal, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died.
go with the Lord's blessing. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance, his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.